This morning we are going to be talking about the flood of Noah. We started last week and this week we're going to work our way, Lord willing, through chapter 7 of Genesis. Before we do that, I want you to think about if someone were to ask you, what are some of the biggest tragedies of all time? What would you say? (laughs) I looked up on the internet. I said, okay, largest loss of human life due to tragedy. I typed that in search engine. I also typed in something like largest loss of life in one day. Uh, And I typed in a few other things. And it came up with different lists and different sites. And so in in, uh, 1556, there was a huge earthquake in China that claimed 830,000 people right in a moment. That was one of the biggest tragedies of all time. Uh, 1976, there was another Chinese earthquake that caused 655,000 deaths. I was six years old. I don't remember that. Anybody remember that? I don't in the news back then. Um, also in 1976, there was uh, yellow road floods in China. Caused two million deaths. In 1931, there was a Chinese flood that caused four million deaths. The influenza outbreak of 1918 and 19 caused up to 40 million deaths. The Black Plague in the mid-1300s caused 25 million deaths. AIDS. So this is just a long period of time, from the late 70s till now, 22 million. World War II, 16 million. World War I, about 9 million. Haitian earthquake back in 2010, so that's pretty contemporary, 316,000. How about that big tsunami in 2004? Remember that one? 227,000. Tropical storm Harriet, that wasn't that long ago. It was in most of our lifetimes here, 50,000 people. Um... There was a cyclone that happened in India and uh, that area that caused up to 500,000 deaths in our lifetime. How about the Turkey earthquake that just happened last year? 60,000 people in one day. Or maybe within a couple days because some of them were trapped under the rubble. Okay, how about COVID? WHO says 3 million people have died worldwide. All those things pale in comparison to this one. Worldwide abortions. Every year, every year, every year, worldwide abortions cause 73 million deaths. How many people just die because they die because they're old or just for whatever reason, cancer, 
car accidents, whatever. How many people die per year in the world? 61 million about. That just happens. So like a little over a million people every week just die because that just happens. That's part of the life cycle. You know what? In all these lists I looked up online, none of them say Noah's flood. And I'm going to tell you this morning, this was the biggest loss of life of all time. We don't know how many people lived in Noah's day. So numbers-wise, it's possible it wasn't the biggest. However, (coughs) percentage-wise, it definitely was the biggest. All right, let's read here in Genesis chapter 7. Beginning in verse (coughs) 11, I'm going to back up to. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On that very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind and all the livestock according to their kinds and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah. Two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. All those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him. And the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Most of us grew up with 
an idea of Noah and the ark based on a bathtub toy. Right, a plastic toy that you may have been given. I don't remember having one, but I remember my little sister having one. And it was like this big, and there was a giraffe poking his head out the top, and then there was a little Noah and a little Mrs. Noah. And I don't remember the other six being part of that set. And then there might have been two or three other animals. And it was cute. And it was fun, right? And it was made for the bathtub. And I think we've done our children, our grandchildren, disservice by doing that. Because (laughs) they have this idea, oh, this is kind of fun. This is kind of... This is the most destructive event ever in history of the world to this date. Now, I'm not judging my parents for getting them, my sister, the, the toy, okay? They, didn't, they did it in ignorance. But the world, much of the world knows of this story. They don't understand it, but they know of it. In fact, I did just a little bit of research here. There's well over, well over 200 there's probably upwards to a thousand, but well over 200 flood stories documented around the globe. And these are not like people now that know of it. These are people that knew of this back in, you know, if you look at people that were isolated from the world. Okay, so a lot of these came to light in the 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 1800s. They'd find these remote peoples, and they'd find in their writings that they would have chronicled a flood story. Here's one from the island of Hawaii, from the like original Hawaiian people. Okay, In that story, a man named Nu'u, kind of sounds like Noah, doesn't it? Uh... A man named Nu'u built a great canoe house. He filled it with animals. And all were killed except him and his family. These were people that had never been exposed to the Bible, but had this in their culture. Of course, we've talked about the Babylonian epic of Gilgamesh a little bit, um, which was discovered in Nineveh. The Nineveh of the Bible where Jonah was, that people said didn't exist, they found it in the 1800s. And then they found in their writings this flood story. It was inaccurate, but there were details in it that were accurate. Here's a great one. This is a people group in Papua New Guinea. It was a tribe, isolated tribe in there. That uh, I've never been there, but I understand Papua New Guinea has lots of lizards on the island. And so the legend goes that the lizards were being tortured by the people. And so they cried out to the great lizard man. And the lizard man caused a great flood to happen. 
and all but two brothers who were, happened to go on a boat were destroyed. There's one problem with that. Two brothers couldn't procreate and populate the rest of the earth, could they? Uh, the Incas had, had a pretty good story here that was, a lot of it was accurate. They believed that six people in their flood story were saved a large, a lar- uh, in a large raft and those six people procreated and the rest of the world was, came to be. Well, that would be Noah's sons, wouldn't it? And his wives. All over the globe, these different story, stories, every continent. Now, here's a statistic. I'm stealing this, okay? So I'm going to trust the accuracy is right. In the flood stories uh, that are out there, 88% of them feature a family that is a favored family, like Noah and his family. 70% talk about the boat saving them. 95% of them um, are stories where that uh, sin was involved. 66% say specifically due to man's wickedness. 67% talk about the animals being saved. 57%, so over half, talk about the ark ending up on a mountain. And then others include some of the minute details about the birds being sent out and the rainbow and... um, the specific number of eight people. And almost all of them talk about the flood being the sole cause of all of this. Now, we're going to get down the road here where we're going to talk about uh, the Tower of Babel and the, the scattering of nations in languages, we're not going to be there today, but as the flood story trickled down and as it was taken across the globe, it would make sense that in languages where there was no writing, that over time those stories would be adapted to their cultures, right? The, the big canoe house, for instance, because they could relate to that what a canoe was like. Bottom line is, there is not there is obviously biblical evidence, but there is much non-biblical evidence in culture that talk about the flood being real. So even the world knows. And we're going to talk a little bit about, more about this next week, but the fossil record shows too. The fossil record uh, shows it because Fossils happen because things get buried quickly. Well, that happened in the flood. So, we've talked about this, I think, quite a bit over the last several weeks, so we we don't need to beat this to death any longer, that the flood is not just a local flood, it's a worldwide flood, and it's known across the globe. But here's the problem. 
people don't understand it. People don't understand it. They, they think it's a, a children's story. They think it's just a legend. They think it's just part of the culture. But what was the purpose of the flood? You already know the answer. I gave it to you last week. I, and God's Word gives it to you. What's, what's the purpose of the flood? Judgment. Judgment is the purpose of the flood. That is God's purpose here. And ironically, it doesn't stand alone in the Bible. Jesus points back to this and says, just as in the days of Noah, this is going to happen again. Right? Just as the world was judged here, the world will be judged future. It will. Now, I wish every Sunday I could just sit up here and tell you how nice you are and what a great person you are and give you a great motivational message, but that's not my calling. My calling is to teach you God's Word. And sometimes the things in God's Word are hard. They're hard to hear. They're hard to take. And what makes it even harder isn't necessarily you. It's as you look out to those that you love. Right? When you, when you think about this and you think about God's judgment, that's tough. There are people that I know that I've loved in my lifetime that are not in heaven. That's hard to take. But I want to also share with you in this something that's very important. As much as the story is about judgment, the story is about salvation. Right? The story is about salvation. The story is about what God did, His graciousness towards Noah and his family. And understand this, that those people that perished... Who knows how many? Hundreds of thousands to several million. We don't know. Some people say as high as a billion people died. I don't know. But amongst those people, they were people just like people today. You may have gone grocery shopping this week at the store and you talked to the clerk and the clerk was smiling and they were friendly, right? And they may have been as lost as can be. And we just pass on by and they just pass on by and you think, oh, that's a nice person. That nice person is the kind of person that perished in the flood. Nice grandmothers and grandfathers perished in the flood. Good neighbors perished in the flood. How do I know that? Well, you say, well, Pastor, it says here that all men's thoughts were nothing but evil continually. So how can that be? These were like specially evil people back then. Uh-uh. Because Paul says the same thing about people today. There is no one righteous. No, not one. There is no one who seeks God. There is no one. 
So but before we think that <laughs> we live in a more corrupt world now than they did then, or they had a much more corrupt world now than we people are the same. They're the same. The heart of people has not changed because they've all inherited Adam's sin. They've all inherited that nature. And that nature brings death. And there is one way out. And that one way out is Jesus Christ. That one way out is the work of God in the heart making somebody born again. The one way out is believing God. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not a work of your own doing. It's the gift of God. What I want to do here this morning is walk through not necessarily this, this story, which is very straightforward, by the way. Forty days, forty nights of continual pounding rain. And coming up, water coming up from the deep. And, and it doesn't say this here. Understand this. All of the Bible, but particularly the Old Testament, is ri- written in such a way that people in the time can understand it. Right? When, when, when this was written, most people didn't read. <laughs> right? And so when it talks about the windows of heaven being opened up, there is not a window in heaven. You know, God doesn't go, Hey, uh, Tunderland, can you replace these for me? <laughs> no. That doesn't happen. That's just a word picture so that culturally the people at the time that this was written, which actually wasn't in Noah's day that it was written down. This was Moses who wrote this down. So people in that day could understand what was going on. Be similar to the Hawaiians saying a great canoe house. Right? So, the story is straightforward, and we're going to talk more about the waters and the implications and some of the some of the the science behind it next week. Not much, but a little. But I want to talk about the implications of what actually happened here. And there's a there's 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 some bookends here that really frame this whole thing for us what we went through last week, the end of uh, verse um, 16 is the one end, and then the other end is uh, verse 23, really. So, here we go. Verse 16 says this one more time, And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Alright, so we got that on the one side, and then on the other side here, um, it says in verse 23, He, He being God, 
blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. Let that sink in. On the one end, you have God graciously having the animals, having Noah and his family put in the ark, God shutting them in. They were safe. On the other end, you have everybody else, everything else, when it comes to animals, dead. That is a picture of God's grace in judgment. And it will be like that in the end. Isaiah 33. We're going to walk through some scriptures here. I could pick out lots of ones here for just to frame our thinking, but this is one that I thought would be appropriate. Verse 2 says, O Lord, be gracious to us. We wait for you. Be our arm every morning. Our salvation in the time of trouble. Jumping forward to verse 17, it says, Your eyes will behold the king in his beauty. They will see a land that stretches afar. Your heart will muse on the terror. Where is he who counted? Where is he who weighed the tribute? Where is he who counted the towers? You will see no more the insolent people, the people of an obscure speech that you cannot comprehend, stammering in a tongue that you cannot understand. Behold Zion, the city of our appointed feasts. Your eyes will see Jerusalem, an untroubled habitation, an immovable tent whose stakes will never be plucked up, nor will any of its cords be broken. But there the Lord in Majesty will be for us. A place of broad rivers and streams where no galley with oars can go, nor majestic ship can pass. For the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. That's Noah's position. He understands that. And he comes to understand that more and more as the the waters prevail, as the ark is lifted up, as the people are blotted out. The Lord is lawgiver, he's judge, and he's king. Now in the book of James, 
it says, life is but a vapor, doesn't it? James chapter 4 tells us that. He says, in other words, life is short. Even in Noah's day, it was short. Turn to Second Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read beginning in verse 8. You do not overlook this one fact, beloved. With the Lord one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is a day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, slowness, but is patient toward you. Understand that He's writing to believers here. Notwithstanding that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. We are so foolish. People are so foolish. They run around thinking that there's no consequences to actions and thinking that whatever they do is okay because they judge it to be okay. They run around and think that whatever they do in secret will never be found out. (laughs) And that is not the case. God will expose everything Everything. And in the end, He will judge. Now, God's judgment is not like your judgment and my judgment. We judge too often based on our preferences, based on our personality, based on even our advantage, what's good for us in the situation. Right? God's judgment is 100% perfect and it's based on the fact that He is a holy God. And He calls everyone to look to Him and be saved. And that apart from that, there is no salvation, there is no real life, and this vaporous life we live in, it's gone. It's gone. He gives a warning here in the book of Hebrews uh, that I want to share with you. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews 12.15 And I'm going to call this a warning to the religious. Hebrews 12:15 See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no 
chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. God gives a moment or a window of time for people to be saved, for people to repent. He gives people opportunity. And at some point, if, if somebody's been so rebellious and they reject him, like Esau, no opportunity. Now, I'm not God, so I have no idea what everybody's opportunity window is. I don't know that. But there is something to the fact that a heart does just get hard, doesn't it? You ever meet anybody who's hard-hearted? And where they, they get so callous in their sin, and people will say things sometimes even like, well, I don't mind going to hell because my friends will be there. There's no friendship there. There's no camaraderie. There's no love in hell. There is weeping. There is gnashing of teeth. There is darkness. There's destruction. There's pain. There's separation. But there's not friendship. That's a warning to the religious Now what about a warning about the day to come? Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17. You may know this uh, part of the book of Acts. We've talked about it before, at least in part. So... Let's look here at verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. Now these are worldly religious people. These are not Jews here. For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. (coughs) I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship is unknown. I proclaim to you the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in temples built made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Pause there. God is gracious to everybody in life, isn't he? He gives people the ability to be free and make choices and live and seek Him. But there is no such thing as a good person. See? What what does it matter, Pastor, as long as I acknowledge that God exists? It's not enough. What does it matter as long as I I can go out in the field and just pray? Alright, go out in the field and pray. <laughs> but know who you're praying to. Right? These people were praying to the unknown God. And He made one man, every, uh, from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. Yet, He's actually not far from each one of us. For in Him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed His offspring. 
Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he will judge the world. In righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus did not come to judge the world but save the world. And yet because of Jesus, through Jesus... The world will be judged by His Word. You can't say it much simpler than that. He is not far from each one of us. Every person. God is not, you know, on some planet somewhere. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. We need to reach out for Him. And God is not too far from any one person. No matter what you've done, where you've been, you can cry out to God. God saves the brokenhearted. God saves the repentant. God saves the one who call on His name. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The problem is, men think that it's at least a little bit on them. And they, they, they function that way, right? Well, God can help me when I really need it, but it's on me. I'm going to pull myself up by my own bootstraps. Or I'm going to do it my own way. Or I know God says this, but I don't like that. So I want to do it this way. Does the clay say to the potter, I don't like the way you're forming me? I want to do it my own way? No. The clay says, do what you will. I'm yours. So that's a warning about the day to come. Jesus gives this warning. I've talked about it before I think we need to look at it one last time here Luke 17 Luke 17 verse 26 just as it was in the day of Noah so it will be in the days of the son of man They were eating and drinking, marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed." On, the day, on that day, let the one who is on the housetop with, him, with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, 
but whoever loses his life will keep it. Let me ask you a question. Let me ask you a question. Is this how you function with God? You say, God, you're in control. Whatever you say goes. (laughs) I want to do your will. Or is it, no, I got my own better way. That's the kind of question that cuts to the heart. This is not, you know, check the box, do you believe in the doctrinal statement? This is personal, deep to the bone, right? You and God, where are you? Do you trust Him? Do you trust He has your best interest? Do you trust He will take care of you? Even when you're wavering in that trust, are you still going, okay, I'm having a hard time here, but God, you're still my God. I, got, I, know, I know you got this. Lot's wife was rebellious. Now, her, her rebellion seems rather minor, doesn't it? She looked back. But that's not what God told her to do. God said, don't look back. You go this way. Understand that God's judgment is serious. It is serious. And God calls us to trust Him in everything. This is a message for us. It's also a message for the world. It's a message for the world. Look, look in one more place with me to Revelation chapter 20. It's a warning about the final judgment. Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it from the presence of From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into into the lake of fire. God's not messing around. God's judgments are true. They're right. And His book is accurate. This is not a... He doesn't have any typos on the list. This should be humbling to us. It should be 
cause us to, to look to God with a holy fear of Him. Right? This isn't meant to scare you. But it is meant for you to, to, to sober us before God in our thinking before Him that His judgments are real. They were real in the day of Noah. They're going to be real again in the end. And there is no one who's going to escape. Here is the great news in all of it. The great news in all of it. Let's look to 1 Peter chapter 3. This has come to become one of my very favorite passages in all of Scripture because of the glorious hope that is here. First Peter chapter 3. I'm going to read a, a greater section than I normally do when I talk about this passage to give it context. 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, all of you. Now, the, finally, if, if, if a Bible writer <laughs> is saying finally, that means he said all kinds of stuff before that, right? And in 1 Peter, he's writing to these, these people that are dispersed, right? And they're discouraged. And some of them are being persecuted. That's, go through and read it on your own here prior to this passage. But 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for, for what is good. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ, the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. In, okay, I'm going to pause there. Real quick. Stop for just a second. Don't read anymore. We're going to pick it up in a second. What's he talking about? He's, he's saying, hey, believers who've been persecuted, who've been hurt, who are you know in trouble, look to me. The eyes of the Lord are on you, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Right? 
He's sharing both sides of his, his graciousness towards believers and his being against those who have no part of him. Right? You see that? Okay, now, it's important here. All right, verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in when? The days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Stop for a second. Understand, if you use this as a proof text, it's scary. Okay? If you just isolate the one verse by itself and don't understand the context, you get in a major trouble here. Because you can say, see, baptism saves you. Right? Every Lutheran funeral I've ever been to, the pastor sits up there and he says, remember your baptism. Now, we're a Baptist church. <laughs> baptism is taught in the Bible. We're called to be baptized as believers. So I'm not here saying, do not be baptized. But if you look at this passage in context, the baptism, this, this baptism now saves you, isn't that. It's not the water. In fact, look here with me one more time. God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. The water doesn't save. In fact, think about Genesis chapter 7. The water destroyed the earth. And everybody in it, every person, every animal, Everything was gone because of the water. It's destructive. You know why my wife married me? Because in college, she thinks I saved her from drowning. I really didn't. She would have been fine. We were, Seriously, we were at the Wisconsin Dells, and we were in Noah's Ark, uh, the water park there, and we uh, were in the, the uh, what do they call that? The tidal. tidal wave thing. You know, they have this big thing that generates waves, goes back and forth, and I said, let's get in it. You know, I look different in a swimsuit then than I do now. Uh, so we, we, we get in there, and I was having a great old time, and, and Tina thought she was going to die. She really did. And I saved her. <laughs> so, so, you know, she felt like she owed me. She had to marry me. <laughs> I 
Okay, for the tape, she says she didn't feel that way. But the water is destructive. The water is destructive. Jesus Christ is what saves you. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of the dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Look to Him and live. Look to Him and be saved. That's what Noah and his family had to do. Must have been doing on the ark. As, as it got scary. It had to be scary. And I don't want to speculate too far, but hey, there could have been, could have been, don't know, there could have been people banging on that door, let me in, let me in. The same people who called him a fool. The same people that said, what's rain? The same people who were living for themselves. If you love your neighbor as yourself, share the gospel with them. Now, before it's too late, they may not respond. That's not on you. That's on them. But Christ came to die and be your ark. He is the one who will safely take you through destruction. And it's only in Him that you are safe and that you are saved. And let what happened in Genesis chapter 7 serve as a reminder for you of God's mercy, God's grace, God's goodness. That ark is what saved Noah. But it really isn't the wood and the, the pitch. and the it, it was God. And for you and for me, it's God, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross to save us so that the wrath, the destruction of God would not fall on you, but you would be safe in Him. But not all will be safe. Just as in the days of Noah, percentage-wise, it's going to be small. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for sending Jesus Christ to be the ark of our salvation. The hope we have. Our life and our health. We pray, God, for You to be merciful and that You would use us to proclaim Your Word of saving grace, of mercy, of love, of hope in Him, and to draw a contrast to everything else as something that will be destroyed. 
What do I or anyone have of value that's worth keeping? Everything's going to perish, God. Everything. Our, our, our greatest worldly treasures are nothing but a trinket. You are awesome and you're good. Thank you for your love and faithfulness towards your people, towards me, towards this church. Please protect and provide for our brothers and sisters all over. Please let this message of hope in the ark of Christ resonate beyond us We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. If the Lord has safely put you in His ark, don't be downcast. Be grateful. Right? Understand that this ark comparison to Jesus, Jesus isn't a physical ark. We understand that, right? But he is our salvation. That's it. The ark was Noah's salvation. That was it. (laughs) There was nowhere else. If you are in him, come forward and celebrate what he's done for you. Look to him and live. We celebrate what he's done for us by taking the bread and the cup, and we'll take it together in just a moment.